Greetings ladies and mental gents and welcome to this batch video for the web novel Out of Space taken from the website Royal Road. And as always I hope you enjoy the narration and if you do please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 357 State of the Game Two absent friends, Bartley and Mills tapped their mugs together. They both finished the bittersweet ale that Mills looked out the window, seeing Titania playing with the wolf pups that had grown almost to adult size. How's everything going? Mills asked. Bartley poured another round and took a sip before he replied. Quiet and simple. Mills nodded. Well, at least it's safe out, yeah? It's crazy world out there, Mills waved his mug around. Crazy gods and goddesses, warmongering empires and man-eating goblins. Kinda wish we were back home, Mills sighed. At least things back there were just black and white. Here it feels like everything is not so simple. Can't kill something without going critical or having some butterfly effect that comes back to bite us in the rear. Bartley nodded in silence, understanding, while Mills rumbled on. Ever since we came here, how many of us are left? I mean, the real marines, not these owls playing dress-up. It's just you and me, Coing and James left in our section, Mills said, and Collins, Lambert and Cooper from left in the other section. When the first boarded the Singapore, Mills continued on the rant, we had a full platoon, a goddamn full platoon. That's thirty men, Mills spoke in a low voice. Now, only nine of us remain, counting the CEO and top. Nine out of thirty, Mills sighed deeply. Granted, more than half of us died fighting the swarm, but still only nine men of us are left. Bartley gently took away Mills's mug. You shouldn't drink too much. You still need to drive back. I can't help think of our odds out there. Mills covered his face. Ever since Drake died, I blamed myself for not getting there to the convoy in his position fast enough. We didn't cluster fricked. Maybe we did not have to die. Cannot do everything, Mills. Bartley patted the back and spoke encouraging tone. You are not a god. Frick gods, Mills cursed. If possible, I want to kill every freaking god out there. And gods are supposed to be mortals. Why the frick are they killing us off and treating us like crap? Bartley could only give a helpless shrug. Maybe this is why our old ancient civilization spell. Frick it, Mills sighed. After, I broke the news to Irishwell. She just froze there. After seeing her like that, you know, what I was thinking, big guy? What? Bartley asked. Her. Mills jerked his head towards the window. I imagine her face when the next officer or NCO in full-dress uniform knocks on the door saying, Dear Madam, while handing over a folded-up flag over, and tells her how I died gloriously on the field of battle in service of the nation. UN City of Haven, Residential District. Irishwell sat unmoving on the couch while the curtains were drawn up, leaving the living room dark and gloomy. The only sound came from the ticking of the war clock and her occasional sniffles. She stared blankly at the wall, her mind complete mess as the words from Drake's fellow soldiers were played in her head again and again. Irishwell, hi. The smartly dressed soldier with Irishwell recognized as Drake's friend, who was also human. Can my colleague and I come inside for a while? She frowned at the strange request, but she stepped aside, letting both soldiers who dressed in formal greys instead of the usual eye-blending uniforms. I have some news for you, but I think you better take a seat first. What is it? Irishwell had asked curiously. Would you all like something to drink? No, thank you, madame. The officer replied. I am Second Lieutenant Silverstar, the officer in charge of Falcon Company. He took out a white envelope with a stamp of the UN Marines and said in a gentle voice, 
On behalf of the Commandant of the Marine Corps, I am here to regrettably inform you that, as an untimely death of Specialist Corporal Drake McGuire, he died ten days ago in the city of Norsholm. As certain operations, detailed and classified, are still undergoing investigation, we could not inform you earlier of his death till now. Additionally, the mortuary officer will contact you regarding the mortuary affairs. Again, on behalf of the Commandant, the Marine Corps, and every Marine here, please accept the Marines' deepest condolences. Lieutenant Silverstar gestured to Mills, who carefully handed over the folded-up flag on the UN with the red bronze medal pinned to it. Erishval remembered she blankly took the flag and stared at the bronze medal in confusion. The medal was in the shape of a five-pointed star chopped with truffles containing a crown and laurel of oak. In the center were five stars with an anchor and an English word for valor. Erishval, Mills called out gently, I am really sorry. He was a friend and a brother to me. He, he died. Erishval's silver eyes stared wildly at Mills, making him unable to look her in the eye. He could only nod. How, how did he die? A helo of ours crashed into the city, Mills replied honestly, ignoring the look given to him by his officer. Two of the crew were still alive then, but the whole city had gone mad, and they were moving in to kill them. He volunteered to go down and hold off the enemy till rescue came. Mills took a deep breath and looked into Irishwal's unfaltering glaze. I, I was the rescue, and I couldn't get to them, him, in time. For his heroic efforts, he was posthumously awarded a Medal of Honor. I, I see, Erishwal closed her eyes. Thank you. I, I need to be alone. I understand. Moles hung his head down. If you ever need anything, anything at all, don't hesitate to contact me or any of the guys. Erishwal couldn't remember what happened after that, just that something broke inside of her. There was no tears, just a deep sorrow, and she sat there in a daze all day. It was until that someone rang her doorbell that she woke up from her daze and she opened the door, finding Biddy, Kaga, and Shireen looking at her with concern in their eyes. Are you all right? Shireen asked quickly as the three girls clustered around Irishwal. I just received the news about it, and I quickly came over as fast as we could. I... I... Irishwal felt herself choking up the tears and suddenly burst out. She hugged the three friends tightly as she cried her eyes out in sorrow while they tried their best to comfort her. UNS Singapore Conference Room The door closed as the last person entered the room and Captain Blake stood and stared at the meeting. All right, everyone is here, let's begin. First of all, as you all have heard, the town of Forledge is currently under our control, Blake said. Now we have basically two cities to draw resources from. That brings us to the next point, Blake continued, integration and education. The new population will not be as open-minded and willing to life like the refugees of Goldrose were, said Blake, as he looked at everyone in the conference table. It'll take time and effort to win the new population over, and also to have them embrace new ideas, technology, and culture. I'll leave this daunting task to the city hall to handle. Blake turned to Shireen, who nodded in acknowledgement. They should have some experience in this field. Do you have anything to report or share with everyone? Blake asked Shireen, who stood up. As of now, our food production, construction, and mining exceed our basic requirements, Shireen smiled. The only issue we have is our manpower and education, and I am hoping to draw from the new population from the two cities that whatever refugees that want to join us. As for education, it'll take some time to improve the level of literacy in the new population, Shireen stated. 
and also the City Hall is drawing up plans to introduce electrical power to these cities, starting with Orwell's Point. Yes, Chief Engineer Matt stood up and said, Working with the Princess's staff, I have come up with several power plant designs suited for the terrain of Orwell's Point. Unfortunately, we can't use wind or hydropower due to the terrain and the setting of the city. But we can set up plenty of solar collectors since the city sits next to the plains, Matt said. We can just build the solar collectors easily and it coincides with the completion of the highway. The solar collectors will be easy to maintain and operate, Matt continued. This way we do not need to station critical personnel there, and instead we can train and teach the locals on how to work on the collectors. Good, Blake nodded. Do it. If Orwell's Point can develop further, they need electricity. As for the refugees from Norsehow, we are allocating them to settle down in Orwell's Point, Shireen said. There are 2,304 men and women as far now. Housing is being constructed for more. We are also planned to develop a town in the middle of the highway between Haven and Orwell's Point to exploit the resources found in the forest and also act as a way station between cities, Shireen added. When that time comes, the plan is to move people willing to migrate to the new place from Orwell's Point. All right, next, military affairs, Blake said. What is the outcome of the cause of the explosion in Norsholm? Magister Thorne stood up and gave a bow before he cleared his throat. We detected large amounts of divine powers concentrating in the crater. This leads us to be certain that whatever died there, the Thorne gave a pause, is a divine being. So, for which god that died there, Thorne gave a shrug, we can only guess that it was a goddess, judging by the statements given by the rescued pilot who said the crazies all worshipped her as Adoni. The force of the explosion, thankfully, is only contained within a sphere of 10 meter radius. Or we would have had more deaths, Dr. Sharon said next. We theorize that it is probably due to the goddess's powers were, uh, weak. So, you are saying if a god with his powers at the full was killed, the explosion would be worse? Commander Ford asked. Yes, Dr. Sharon nodded, but as how too many times, I do not know. It can be a hundred times or even a thousand times or a million. We have no gauge to base our findings on. Damn, Ford gave a thoughtful frown to Blake. All right, Blake spoke up. Try your best to see if we can make use of this information. Come up with a plan of action in case we bump into another god. We need some sort of SOP for the troops to tackle such a situation, which I can guess is getting very common lately. Frank... Blake turned to the Colonel Frank who stood up. We will have a few more battalions for the Marines in a couple of weeks when the current batch of recruits pass from our basic, Frank said. Also, we plan to recruit locally and merge the current militia into new ground forces called the Self-Defense Force. The SDF's functions will be mostly involved with fixed defense of the cities, Frank said. We will try to use the locals so that there will be less than hassle to transfer the SDF troops here and there. The founding of the SDF will allow our marines to be able to mobile strike force, Frank explained. This way we put more manpower into areas of conflict and not have another incident like Norsam from repeating due to lack of troops. The marines will become our hammer while the SDF will be our anvil against any threats to the cities. End of chapter. Chapter 358. Dignity. Navy is also planning some new changes, Commander Ford reported. We are looking at replacing our current hulls with all new constructs, which will improve our capabilities at sea. Not only that, the amount of maintenance, repairs, and a whole of other issues will be drastically reduced, Ford said. As of now, the main naval fleet is barely mission-capable, as with all the leaks and problems. 
The main issue being our current fleet of wooden ships is not strong enough to withstand the stress of our weapons and engines, Ford explained. The keel of the ship that we got are not built to withstand the firing of the cannons and even the speed of the engines are putting them on. They are not like the Aegis sail ships, which was built to withstand cannonball fire. These ships only have ballistas and catapults, which means the keel is structurally a lot weaker and they are breaking apart. So what we got now is a pretty much useless hull sitting in the docks, Ford said. Oh, and we run drills and training exercises on the board of the UNS Matador and the UNS Boating Wreck, but other than that, they are grounded for now. So how will we deal with the goblin pirates, someone asked. We will be using PT boats to run interference up and down the straits, Ford replied. The boats only have enough range to cover the straits, and that's it. For now, they are enough to handle whatever raiders roaming the straits, Ford said. We just need to uphold until winter comes and the straits will be closed. In the meantime, we will try to modernize our fleet of large surface ships, Ford sat down as he finished. All right, Blake nodded. Let's end it for today. Next meeting is in a week's time. Dismissed. As the room slowly emptied out, Chief Engineer Matt stopped by Blake and said, Sir, I think you need to make a trip to down to Ordnance for a look. Something interesting, Blake raised an eyebrow at Matt's words. Yes, sir, Matt nodded, I guess so. I can't make a decision on it. Okay, I'll be there after lunch, Blake promised. Matt gave a salute and exited the conference room, leaving Intelligence Officer Lieutenant Tabor behind with Blake. Lieutenant Tabor closed the door behind Matt and placed a tablet on the table before Blake and stood on the side to parade rest. Blake picked up the tablet and thumbed the security lock as he skimmed through the contents. So the opposing faction against Lady Titania are heading towards the next Imperial City by road. Yes, sir, Lieutenant Tavor replied. They'll be out of our FB-1 stationed at Orwell's Point's bombing range in roughly six hours. Hmm. Blake tapped his fingers on the tabletop as he pondered whether to kill off the Imperial loyalists. Lady Titania's two brothers are also in the convoy, Lieutenant Tavar said. She let them go in the end as they joined up with the opposing faction. Sir, we have a very small window of opportunity here, Lieutenant Tavar said. The bombers will take about five hours to get in position. Blake frowned as he looked at the top secret report to play it on the table. No, let them go. Sir, Lieutenant Tavar was surprised. They'll bring trouble to us in the future. I know. Blake sighed as he put down the tablet before turning back to Tavor. But they also have several hundred civilians traveling with them, and our bombs are not exactly very precise. I understand, sir, Lieutenant Tavor said. Then I'll propose we move another battalion to reinforce Orwell's point. It's also about time the Empire will be responding to the feet of their troops by our hands. Blake nodded. Who do you recommend would make a good governor of Orwell's point? I can't keep up having Joseph the govern the city and ignore his duties as CEO of 2nd Battalion. Hmm. Lieutenant Tavor frowned as he recalled the intel of the city. There aren't many good choices for their post of governor. Almost everyone in Orwell's Point is biased to either the pro-slaves or ex-slaves. Not to mention, the leaders we are trying to cultivate have happily sell you off in a heartbeat if they can get more benefits. Lieutenant Tavor shook his head. But maybe... Maybe, Blake waited for Tavar to continue. We can try putting Lady Titania in place as governor, Lieutenant Tavar suggested. First, she is well known by the locals. Secondly, she's quite capable of managing a city. Third, she's more or less on our side. And lastly, she is quite fair and won't play favorites for the factions. And, of course, giving her a high-ranking position will quiet down any dissent from her people, Lieutenant Tavar said. Makes less chance of her people rebelling against us, sir. Blake nodded. 
Good idea. I'll talk to her regarding this and see what her reaction is. United Nations said to your favor. Titania felt like she was transported to another world as she craned her head left and right constantly, trying to catch a view of the surroundings. Towers taller and larger than the Citadel of Norsalm and even the magician's towers in the capital. Each square-faced tower was covered in a dark glass, while the streets were filled with strange carriages that rumbled loudly or moved so quietly that it could only be made out by power by magic. Clothes and dresses were worn by citizens of the city were so colorful and well-made that Titania looked upon them with envy. And best of all, there wasn't any sewage smell from the city of the size. Normally, the larger the town or city, the smellier it was. Magic was used to remove the smell from the streets, but still, there would still be a stench remaining behind. But the smells of the city were in fact the other way around. Instead, smells of wealth-watering food and flowers filled the streets. Mill sat next to the curious Titania, who still looked like a cat at this time, as she tried to take in everything at the same time. He kept the speed of the jeep low to allow her more time to take in the sights. He had taken her to breakfast at the hotel, which was specifically built for overseas guests coming in for the wedding. After the breakfast for bread, pancakes, eggs and bacon, hash browns and sausages, which she had tried every single item on the buffet table before she was satisfied, Mills had taken her to meet an old friend, Bartley. He purposely drove the scenic route, letting her see the residential areas and the farms on the way to Bartley's place, and now he took her to visit the city's commercial and business districts. How is it? It's amazing, Titania replied in wonder. How? How did this all get built like this? Magic? Magic, Mills laughed at Titania's question. Well, I guess it can be considered some kind of magic. See, Titania said with a smug tone, I knew you had a very powerful magic, yet you all keep saying that you don't know magic. If not, how can you explain a city of the magnitude be built? <laughs> Mills kept laughing and shook his head. Well, it's true that we do not know any magic. Still not telling me the truth, Titania hissed. Whatever. <laughs> Don't be angry, Mills coaxed Titania. We'll understand in time. Titania rolled her eyes and Mills turned back to view the magical scenery and ignored Mills. So are you hungry? Mills finally asked as he was unable to coax Titania. Titania rubbed a tunny and nodded. Yes, you better bring me to eat something nice or I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> sure, Mills grinned as he drove the jeep towards the one place he was very familiar with and not long, he turned the jeep into the parking lot of the burger shack. Titania nodded in appreciation at the glass-covering walls and the cheerful decor restaurant. Not bad, at least this place looks like it has some class. Moles kept his expression neutral as he nodded in a wise way. Of course, how can I bring you to a low-class place for food? The glass doors automatically slid open on their approach to the entrance, and Mills grinned while making a grand gentleman's gesture. After you... Titania smiled and waltzed in as Mills behind her. She looked around the restaurant and felt something was wrong. There were colorful booths, square tables, and long tables with seats, and the entire restaurant was almost full of people. What is this place? Titania asked Mills. I thought you were bringing me to some fancy restaurant. Oh, this is better than any fancy restaurant, Mills reassured Titania. You can't find anything like this in the entire world. Come. Mills pulled Titania to a small square table with two seats and quickly sat her down. Wait here, I shall order some burgers for you. Trust me, you will love it. Huh? Titania could say another word. Mills had already left her alone at the table and headed to the queue that was formed in front of the counter with several large signboards displaying colorful images of some kind of food. 
she took a time to observe the people in the restaurant, and to her surprise, she saw orcs, goblins, and even some islanders having their meals here. What kind of place was this? Not long, Mills carried a tray stacked with wrapped balls and two large cups. He triumphantly placed the tray down on the table and started to introduce the strange wrapped balls. Muffalo, virum, and fish. She watched Mills unwrap the balls in some kind of bun or pastry it was revealed. With the petty of salts, she followed his actions and took a small bite and was surprised at how tasty the burgers were. Good, right? Mills grinned as he pushed a plate of cheese fries before her. You should try this too. Titania took a mouthful of fries covered with oozing cheese and bacon bits and felt it was too tasty. What is this made of? Mills pointed to the long golden fries and said potatoes and cheese. P-potato? Titania was confused by the word. She had never heard of such a food before. Oh, you won't be able to find it in this world, Mills said. We brought it in from a place that's very far away from this world. I see... She barely finished the sentence when the shadow fell over the restaurant and she felt the ground shake lightly. Following everyone's look, she turned to look out the glass windows and saw two massive dragons folding their wings and lumbering their way over like oversized wooden birds. Dragons? Wait, Titania frowned as she stared at the reddish scales of the red dragon behind the other blue-red scaled dragon. That dragon looks familiar. Oh, Mole scratched his head sheepishly. You caught her once. Caught her once? Titania blinked her eyes in confusion before realization struck her. Oh, it's that red dragon, Titania exclaimed in surprise. Wait, what are they doing here? Um, Moles gave a dry laugh, glad that she did not know that Moles was the one that rescued Ristaraz and blew up her ship. Them dragons love the food here. What? Titania looked down at a half-eaten burger and cheese fries. They partake in food like these. Yes, Moles nodded. They love the cheese fries. I mean, uh, that was how we tamed Restraz. Restraz is the red dragon. Titania narrowed her eyes and gestured to the plate of cheese fries. Are you telling me that you people tamed a red dragon with this? Uh Uh-huh, Moles muttered under his breath in full. Yep. Titania felt like her concept of the world crashing down around her. She could not believe that such a proud dragon was tamed by such a small thing like this. Where was the dignity of a dragon gone to? End of chapter. Chapter 359. Upgrades. As the wedding between the two leaders of the United Nations came closer, the atmosphere of the city of Haven turned into a celebratory mood as the citizens started decorating the city with colorful banners and flags all over the city. News and radio stations were all full of talk about the upcoming wedding, and the hype was everywhere on the streets. Representatives from the UN outposts and even the friendly villagers and merchants arrived from afar and lodged within the Hotel de Locus. The new arrivals were shocked and surprised by the strange and wondrous city and all its magical yet not magic constructs. Many merchants knew the city started to reevaluate the potential of the UN as they started making plans to enrich themselves with the technologie of the city. UN Experimental Ordnance Division So, what are the new projects you wanted me to review? Captain Blake asked as he sat down at the head of the conference table. Sir, Chief Engineer Matt, Director of the Experimental Ordnance Division, or XOD as they called themselves, handed over several old-fashioned paper folders to Blake. Each folder had a large, bold red font of top secret stamped on the cover which featured the crest of the redesigned UN logo. And this... Chief Matt hesitantly handed over another folder which instead of having top secret stamped on it, only had merited a classified stamp. 
Blake frowned, and as he picked up the new folder and flipped it open, as his frown deepened as he read the introduction. A walker? Yes, Chief Matt replied, it's, um, a side project of two otakus. From my knowledge, Blake looked up from his reading and said, the two-legged walker's weakness is its legs, two fragile and easy targets. Take one out and it drops. Yes, sir, Chief Matt sighed. That is why I needed you to review this, sir. I'm not sure if we can push it into the military review committee. I might have a serious weakness, but if we can put it into the private sector, Blake made a suggestion. Into the private sector, Chief Matt frowned. What sector? I can think of a few useful ways to use the walker, Blake said as he continued to reread the report. Logging comes to mind in the first, next exploration and construction, or even the heavy lifter. Hmm. Chief Matt nodded and considered the possibilities. If it's used as an uncharted forest, it'll be more effective compared to the tractor-wheeled vehicles. Yep. Blake flipped open the file last few pages of the report. Walkers can navigate easier around the massive trees of the forest and better, and tracked and wheeled vehicles can. I can imagine equipping these guys with pincer claws and saw blades for logging. Their height advantage will make harvesting the massive trees easier and a lot less waste using explosives to clear the forest. Give the mounted MG on board a self-defense weapon against feral goblins and monsters, Chief Matt grinned and rubbed his hands. I'm sure the foresters and vloggers would love it. <laughs> Blake laughed and shook his head before he picked up the next folder. New pistol for the military? Yes, Chief Matt replied. We have a new pistol and a sub-gun caliber production line set up. The single-action dragon revolvers have too much recoil due to them chambering the rifle cartridge and slow in the reloading, nor due to the sub-gun for personal defense. 45 caliber, Blake continued reading. Yes, sir, Chief Matt confirmed. With our technology and manufacturing capabilities now running at full steam, we are finally able to produce blowback actions for our weapons. We have tested several calibers against known creatures, Chief Matt added. 9mm and 10mm rounds without advanced tech are only capable of wounding a class 2 lifeform slightly. Lifeforms on Planet Blake's world were classified according to classes from 1 to 10, 1 being the weakest and 6 the strongest, Humans and elves and other lesser creatures were class 1 bland, while orcs, mufflos, and dino lizards were class 2. Trolls, ogres, windwolves were listed as class 3. Griffins and the twin-tailed scorpion the giant beetle found in the dungeons were listed as class 4, while dragons like Blue Thunder were listed as class 5. Monsters such as the T-Rex Godzilla, giant squid Kogra, and the island whales were placed under class 6. The Hero and the Shadow Serpent clones were Class 7, and the guards were classified as above that. We found that with our current gunpowder tech, 45 caliber strikes would balance out between weight per round and percentage power of the capable of wounding a Class 3 life form. Our pistol design is borrowed from the current Glock 88, Chief Matt explained, chambered in a 45 instead of a 5mm. Also, it will be made out of a full metal instead of a composite materials. Also for the sub-gun... Chief Matt continued, we will be using a design similar to the old H&K's MPK-5s for compactness. It'll be chambered in 45 and will come along with a folding buttstock. Blake nodded as he reviewed the contents of the report. Good. I'm sure the military committee will approve these. Next project, Chief Matt gestured to another file. We plan to replace the fighter attacker, one Cobras, with the FA-2 Advanced High Performance Reconnaissance Light Aircraft, or ALRAC for short. It'll be a third larger than the Cobra and more than three times heavier than Seats 2, a pilot and a co-pilot observer. Chief Matt explained, 
While the data taken from the building of the Cobra and the combat flight behavior, we came out with a brand new redesign of the Cobra. The LRAC will come with a newly developed turboprop engine instead of the rotary engine currently used by the Cobras, said Chief Matt proudly as he and his team managed to design the new products on his new turboprop engine successfully. It'll be 10 times more powerful than our current gen of rotary engines. 10 times? Rake whistled in admiration. That's very impressive. In addition to the engine upgrades, Chief Matt smugly continued, the aircraft hull will be full metal and better armored compared to the Cobras. It'll also feature an internally mounted 20mm autocannon with magazines of 950 rounds and six hardpoints capable of carrying either a 250kg all-purpose bombs or the 70mm rocket pods. Range-wise, it'll have four times the range of the Cobras, meaning that it can make the trip directly to Fall Edge without a need to refuel, Chief Matt said. Speed-wise, it'll have at least twice the speed and maneuverability compared to the Cobras. Very nice, Blake nodded. When can we expect a working prototype? By midwinter, Chief Matt replied. Also, with the new gen engines, we plan to upgrade the existing fleet of FB-1 Mariners. It'll give them twice the range, speed, and carrying weight. Also, a second all-purpose transport plane based on the legendary C-130 Hercules is being developed and prototyped, Chief Matt added. We can expect the prototype to be out by next year, late spring. Good, Blake nodded and picked up the next folder, and he skimmed through it. This? Upgrade plans for the spider tanks and a new 8x8 armored fighting vehicle armed with the new 88mm guns. Chief Matt said, New armor plating, expanded turret on either house, a single 88mm or dual 3-inch gun with a basic auto-loading system, which we copied off of our main guns. Why AFPs and not main battle tanks? Blake asked curiously. Despite learning ground combat, he was far after more than a naval officer than a ground commander, hence he asked the question. We found that the terrain here barely gives the need for tracked vehicles, Chief Matt explained. First, we are surrounded mostly by thick forest which barely allows vehicles to move. Next, we barely have any open ground more than two kilometers, which means that our engagement range is pretty much knife fighting for tanks, unless you planned to post tanks at Orwell's point and fight in the plains, which basically are empty. Third, barrel length, Chief Bennett nested on the cons. A typical 88mm long barrel length is roughly 5 meters long. This makes traversing the turrets in the forest with a long barrel useless. We can equip the tanks with a snub-nosed 3-inch gun, but it's just wasted to put a 3-inch on a tank. Four AFVs can fulfill the roles of the MBTs easily, continued the chief. AFVs can travel faster, require less maintenance and fuel. Also, we do not need to spend time researching and building techniques and technology for MBTs. AFVs can be equipped with 20mm gun or a 3-inch gun or rocket pods as support while carrying troops. Lastly, Chief Macrand, we also have a manned armored walker spider tanks. Why waste time and resources on researching our MBTs? Point taken, Blake nodded. As I said, the 8x8 AFVs will either be mounted with a 20mm rocket pods or the 3-inch gun turret rockets. Chief Matt said, it'll also have a capability to carry a section of troops in the armored compartment at its rear. It'll also be designed to be an urban combat in mind, Chief Matt added, in view of the recent incident of Norsalm. Prototyping will be starting once the committee gives approval. Now, the last item. Blake opened the last folder and frowned. Really? We noticed that a large amount of marines have some affinity to magic, Chief Matt smirked, but they can't draw upon their own powers without fatiguing themselves. This will be very bad in a combat situation. Hence, the R&D came up with the idea of giving them a... 
Power Fists. Chief Matt shook his head. Not my choice of naming, but it's duck. Anyway, the Power Fist acts the same as how a mage would use a magic staff or a wand to power his or her spells, explained Chief Matt. Mana stones will be attached to the back of the glove, which, on a usual, acts to work as a pair of normal combat gloves for the troops. When the spellcaster marine wants to cast a spell, Chief Matt gestured to the image in the dark ring glove. They can draw upon the power of the mana stones instead of using their own body reserves. It could mean life and death for a soldier if they had such a tool in the battlefield. Chief Matt said, Medics will be able to cast more healing spells, while combat troops will be able to cast spells to support himself and the section mates in times of need. Blake nodded and he understood the implications of such a tool. This is actually very useful. Yes, sir, Chief Matt agreed. Most of our Alvin Marines have the ability to use magic, but their innate powers are not very high, making it useless for them as most of the time they can only cast a spell or two per day. With such a tool, their magic abilities will improve, making them deadlier in battle. I will personally approve this power fist to the committee, Blake promised as he got close the folder. Keep up the good work and tell you guys they did well. Blake praised Matt and his team. Thank you, sir. Chief Matt grinned and led the way out for Blake. Say, I've been thinking, Blake suddenly said on the way out of the parking lot, I'm thinking of recording old humans from combat posts and putting them into desk jobs and instructor roles. What do you think? Chief Matt frowned. Sir, this might come as a resentment from the locals. They will think we're biased, Chief Matt pointed out. Blake nodded. Yes, I'm worried about that point. But we only have so much of us left, Blake said sadly. Any more of us time will truly become an endangered species on this planet. End of chapter. Chapter 330. The Wedding. Captain Blake put on his dress whites, which had been customized slightly. The gold agulet had now adorned his uniform together with a pair of golden epaulets sat on his shoulders. He checked himself with a full-length mirror before slipping on his ceremonial sword, similarly sheathed with a golden coat. Commander Ford, similarly dressed but without a golden agulet, gave a grin as Blake exited his quarters. Uniforms make the man look good. Blake rolled his eyes as he returned the salutes of the Marine Guard. Didn't think you'd be so chippy this morning after all that bootleg moonshine you took. <laughs> Ford laughed before he replied in a softer voice. Well, I have Dr. Sharon's help for getting rid of my hangover. Blake shook his head helpless as he recounted the stag night party they organized last night, which was more like an alcohol drinking competition with lots of barbecue and a weirdly cheesed fries, which he dimly recalled seemed to be ordered by a particularly large dragon. While he had his stag night party going on, the girls, on the other hand, had their hen's night, which, all of the people, was organized by Dr. Sharon and included all female crew and their female friends, which too included a dragon. Yeah. Blake strolled into the bridge and waved away the salutes of the duty crew and walked right up to the armored viewports. From his vantage point, he could see the entire city spread out before him, as the UNS Singapore's bridge remained the tallest structure in the city. He could see the city walls spread out as a huge star with many points, while the inner city walls were circular. Glass houses glittered between the outer walls and the inner walls, while residential and commercial buildings roused up behind the inner walls. The shape of the city was silk and starry torch, with the UNS Singapore as a torch handle and anchoring the city with the one end. Blake felt a huge, satisfying sense of achievement as he looked over the city, knowing that he was the one that modeled it out. 
Over the time crashed here, this UNS Singapore had undergone several renovations and refittings. Gone was the ugly mangled rear section of the ship. It was now replaced by the locally produced steel plating that was bolted over the sections of the ship after the damaged sections were cut away. The slight tilt of the ship was also gone, as they had dug away the earth underneath the ship and rebalanced it, laying the ship flat instead of a slanted at 12 degree angle. The bow of the ship was now crashed into the side of the hill cliff, was also leveled away, exposing the crushed and dented armor which was also removed and refurbished. The city class no longer looked like it was an original designers had made it look like after it was rebuilt. Gone was the aerodynamics of a ship, making it no longer look sleek and deadly. Instead now, it looked more like a futuristic flat-topped pyramid fortress with sharp angles and slabs of white painted metal and concrete. Now, what remained of the UNS Singapore's arsenal was just a forward-spacing dorsal dual 150mm railguns and two 50mm point-defense laser turrets, each facing aside, as the rest were stripped down and stored away as spare parts. It was also useless to have all eight dorsal PD lasers running as they do not have enough power to constantly fire those energy-hogging weapons. Even the missile's vertical launch system was removed and only four VLSs remained in the service to provide a defensive umbrella around the city. They barely even had enough missiles left in the tubes and even less after the third of their remaining guide missiles were decommissioned for their onboard computers and smart chips. So in the end, Blake made a decision to mothball the extra weapons and use them for replacement parts that would be almost impossible to replicate in this world till they managed to develop advanced technology and manufacturing capabilities. And he had engineering replace those and removed weapons with locally made 20mm manned autocannon turrets strategically installed on board the dorsal top of the supplement the loss of firepower. As those weapons that were underneath the ship, they were all dug out and used for R&D and also retrofitted and redesigned as fixed defenses for the city walls after the success of the experimental rail cannon at the defense of Sawtooth Mountain, which saw the modded PD turrets which some success with low-powered rail cannons. The UNS Singapore was no longer a star-faring ship, capable of travel between the stars. Now it was turned into a stronghold, acting as the headquarters of the United Nations. Its holds and facilities were refurbished into barracks for troops and vehicles. Its carrier decks held three full squadrons of twelve fighters, while the weapons formed a protective umbrella against all that dared approach with it with evil intent. It's time, Ford said as he glanced at the clock. Let's go welcome your bride. Thousands had turned up for the wedding as three-day of a holiday was declared. They thronged the walkways and fields while the local police and marines kept order on the roads open. The celebratory music of all kinds played and blasted at radios while the lucky enough to stay in the residence with a few with the wedding motorcade waved flags and threw flower petals at the balconies. The celebratory noise was incredible, even more compared to founding day. Majors threw spells into the air, much to the delight of the crowd, especially the children. Colorful illusion spells of animals and creatures floated above and cheering crowd, while spells mimicking fireworks flared brightly against its sunny day. Shireen was dressed in an ivory satin strapless, A-line silhouette-style wedding dress with a bodice embellishments with lace epaulets and diamonds. She sat at her back straight as she turned to a princess mode, waving at the cheering crowd. The glossy black, open-topped half-track decorated with long white ribbons and flowers followed forward slowly while they escorted by a procession of jeeps and motorcycles. 
Flower petals rained down from the skies while more illusion magic followed the wedding motorcade easily. Shireen felt like the human's wedding culture was strange yet wonderful at the same time. From her knowledge of the wedding customs, her family had to prepare a dowry to the groom, but Blake not only rejected it, he even said that everything that was his was also hers, which shocked her greatly. Even the wedding dress and outrageously low cut, she couldn't have imagined wearing such a dress in the days of old. Yet now, she normally wore casual clothing that revealed her legs and even her shoulders during the hot summer days. Soon, the motorcade stopped before the long red carpet, and with the help of Shireen's bridesmaids, she climbed out of the vehicles training behind the two-meter-long train, which the bridesmaids helped to hold up. The ex-Lord General, now turned Marine Captain Joseph, offered his arm out to Shireen, and the whole procession walked down the aisles, covered with decorative arches covered in green ivy and flowers. Both sides of the aisles, benches filled with guests, cheered and clapped loudly at their arrival. The open-air wedding venue was set before the UNS Singapore turned superfortress on a large parade square, capable of filling thousands of guests. Shireen smiled as she saw Blake standing nervously at the end of the aisle where the simple cloth covered the table and a pair of chairs stood. An unfamiliar melody was being played by a small band on the side and the master of ceremony was announcing the arrival of the bride. Shireen barely noticed what was happening around her, as her eyes and attention was only on the figure in white before her. Blake's eyes twinkled as he smiled gently back at the gorgeous-looking elf that was going to become his lawful wife. He stretched his hand out and grasped her gloved hands and held onto her hands as if he stood facing her with a deep smile. Hi. Hi, Shireen replied shyly back. So what are you doing here? Blake teased softly. I'm getting... Married? Shireen's face turned pink. <laughs> Blake laughed and turned his attention to the smiling Magister Thorne, who was acting as a celebrant. <clears throat> Magister Thorne cleared his throat and gave a small wink to the couple before he addressed the guests. Can the guests please rise up for the ceremony? Good, good, Magister Thorne smiled and said. Now I have it on good authority that everyone doesn't really want a long speech, so I'll make this short and sweet. Welcome family, friends, and loved ones. We are gathered here today to celebrate the union of Captain Richard Brake and Princess Shireen Goldrose. We are all here to support this commitment of love and to share their joy as they choose to spend their lives together. You are creating a new home with that love. Trust and loyalty are the foundations. No matter what the future throws your way, rely on those foundations and you shall only see your bond grow stronger and your souls grow wiser. Marriage is not easy, but from what I've seen in the two of you, I know your relationship will be an example to follow. You show care and compassion, you trust one another, and most importantly, you are each other's best friends. Now, Captain Blake, do you take Princess Shireen to be your lawful wedded wife? Magister Thorne asked a solemn tone. I do, Blake said. And you, princess, do you take Captain Blake to be your lawful wedded husband? Magister Thorne turned to Shireen and asked. I do, Shireen replied. Very well. Magister Thorne's face broke into a wide smile. I now pronounce you husband and wife. May the heavens protect you. Oh, and you may kiss the bride, added Magister Thorne after he gave a sheepish laugh after a short pause. Blake pulled Shireen into his brace and kissed her lovingly before wowing and cheering guests and fireworks. Confetti and spells erupted from everywhere as the nation celebrated the union of the captain and the princess. 
Blue Thunder sniffed and blew his nose with a tablecloth as he watched Shireen toss a banquet of flowers into the crowd for woman. Ah, such a lovely romance. Ristras next to him rolled her dinner plate-sized eyes into the sky at Blue Thunder's antics. Stop being a wussy, you drama queen. Blue Thunder turned his teary eyes to Ristras. Where did you learn such language? Ristras gave a low growl which made Blue Thunder quickly sit up straight. You want to find out? Okay, no thank you. Blue Thunder quickly replied, Wait, I think I smell cheese fries. See ya. Ristras shook her serpentine head in defeat as she watched Blue Thunder leapt off into the skies and headed towards the buffet table. Fleet Master to John sighed regretfully as he clapped along with the rest of the guests as he headed towards the serving bar for the guests. He planned to drink himself blind for the rest of the day. Titania watched the couple offering toasts and guests as she turned to look at Merle standing next to her. She suddenly saw herself dressed in white wedding gown standing at the aisle and the man before her was Merle's. Titania? Yeah? Titania blinked and the vision was gone, replaced by Merle's face. His worried expression touched her heart and she suddenly leaned forward and kissed him on the lips. Huh? Merle's was shocked at Titania's sudden action. He touched his lips and Titania quickly looked away, her face turning red as a bold act. Wow, someone sniggered beside him. Someone's getting lucky today. End of chapter. And that, my friends, is the end of this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the channel. There are numerous links down below. The easiest way would be to share this video and this channel to as many people as possible to help this channel grow. Your support is very much appreciated. And I will see you all in the next video. Cheers.